0: Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We are still walking through the gospel of Mark, still in our series there. We are going to finish this series this year, Lord willing. Um, Still moving through Mark 12 verse by verse, which has been a wonderful time. I hope you've enjoyed it. Still talking through the gospel or the good news according to the way it was documented by Mark and the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, we have been taking some fairly... Big bites out of our text um, the past couple weeks. So for this week, we're going to kind of settle down and watch Jesus again be questioned by yet another group of religious leaders. Now, before we jump into this text, I want to I want to ask and pray that uh, by being here, if you would please remember to pray for your leaders. Um, please remember to listen to uh, your leaders because here's the reality. Even as leaders, uh, we need your prayers. And by we, I'm speaking to uh, the pastoral leaders in our churches. I would also ask that you pray for our government leaders, our federal government leaders as well. Um, our bosses and CEOs pray for these people um, because they have to make big decisions each and every week for our day. And in light of what's happening right now, we especially need to be praying uh, for our leaders. But with that and what we're seeing happen with Jesus Christ, I would take it a step further and say that we need to listen to our leaders as well. We need to watch them, pray for them. Yes, but let's pay careful attention to them because here's the reality Even as leaders, we can miss the point. There are times where we as leaders make Mistakes, And so it is in those moments as believers in Jesus Christ, we may be needed or called upon to gracefully bring back our leaders to the Word of God. Now, we're going to understand a little more of this thought as we begin to unpack our text today. But before we do, I want to say that as a believer, it's always been interesting to me to see how fascinated people are with what happens when we die or after we die. In fact, the conversation often starts out with someone asking in a group, is there life after death? Now, the fact is, every religion has some sort of perspective on this particular question. In fact, recent studies have shown that 80% of Americans believe in some form of life after death. So as Christians, we have always had a strong doctrine concerning this particular question. In fact, we build our understanding of the future, of the end times, even eternity from the teachings of Jesus Christ according to the Word of God. So we see that our beliefs and our future rest upon the belief and the power of the empty tomb and the power of the resurrected Savior who is living and who is active. Yet even though we have these truths... Even though we have these beliefs, as believers in Jesus Christ, we still have to admit to a good bit of mystery on the precise details of life after death. Yes. The Bible does tell us a lot, but there are still things that we do not understand, and we may not ever understand until we experience them for ourselves. Now, this is the question and the thought that Jesus must now answer and address as he finds himself in front of yet another group of religious leaders, and he is questioned about a promised future. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to begin reading here in a moment from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, and once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is the Gospel of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, we read, "'And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher,' When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? for when they raise from the dead for when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and as for the dead being raised have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob he is not the god of the dead but of the living you are quite wrong Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this day. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be gathered in this place and to study your word. And so, Father, we ask that as we continue in worship, Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us and guide us. We thank you for the opportunity we've had today to study your word in our Sunday school classes and small groups. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had today already to gather and worship you through the reading of your scripture, through the prayers. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship you in song and for the opportunity to worship you in giving. And Father, we ask and pray now that you would prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for your truth. And Father, be glorified as we worship you in the teaching of your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for delighting in us. And Father, we ask now that you and you alone would be glorified for it is in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, to set the scene for you, if I could, Jesus now encounters a troubling riddle from a group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees. Now, this was a group of leaders who did not believe in life after death. They had no belief in the power of the resurrection. In fact, I remember being taught about the Sadducees many, many moons ago as a young person, and this was the way my Sunday school teacher told me how to distinguish between who were Sadducees and who were Pharisees. He said it this way. He said, you see, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. The Sadducees did not have a hope for the future, and that is why they are called sad, you see. Now, I know that's cheesy and corny, but I want you to know that knowing the answer to that question helped me not only through college but also into seminary. You would be amazed at how many people couldn't tell you the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But anyway, back to Jesus Christ. What Jesus is about to do in this brief encounter is completely destroy the Sadducees' doctrine of annihilation. You see, Jesus is going to teach them, and we are going to learn today that we should expect our great God to prepare a great heaven. So look with me in verses 18 through 23, and what we will see can be called the problem. You see, this massive parade of opponents continues for Jesus. The Sanhedrin have already taken their shot, and they went down. We saw this back in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. Then the Pharisees and the Herodians, two enemies who have now become allies, come to Jesus Christ. They took him on, and then Jesus was able to shut them down as well in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So now the Sadducees come with a riddle and a trick question that they actually used to frustrate the Pharisees. You see, for the Sadducees, they thought, since this story or this riddle worked on the Pharisees, let's try it out on Jesus. Because if the Pharisees couldn't answer it, then Jesus clearly can't answer it. And man, were they wrong! This was a bad idea before the get-go. Now again, before we dive into this text, let's take a little more time to learn about the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees were a small sect of priestly families made up of wealthy aristocrats with significant political and temple influence. Now, we know that they dominated the Sanhedrin. You can read more about them in Acts chapter 5, uh, particularly in verse 17. We know that the Sadducees were sympathetic to Hellenism, to to the Herods and also to Rome. They believed that the only authoritative text was the book of Moses, or the books of Moses, if you will, the Pentateuch. They took that as their only authoritative word of scripture. So this made them, in a sense, theological conservatives. They actually had a strong doctrine of human free will, and yet they did not believe in angels nor in demons. We find this out in Acts 23, verse Eight. Also, they did not believe in immortality of the soul or in a future bodily resurrection. In fact, Josephus, in his writing of antiquities, wrote of the Sadducees: the doctrine of the Sadducees is this: souls die with bodies. You see, the Sadducees were not looking for a Messiah king coming from the line of David. Now, historically, what we know of the Sadducees is this. With the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple around A.D. 70, the center of their power was also destroyed. It was at that same time their political influence came to an end, and ultimately what happens to the Sadducees is they vanished from history So back in our text, we see that the Sadducees have now asked a trick question that is grounded in the issue of what is known as liberate, or Latin for brother-in-law marriage, which is mentioned in Genesis 38, verses 8 through 10, also in the book of Ruth, and it can be found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Now God, in these passages, made a provision for a family to be raised up in name and property rights, for a husband who dies with no male And so the Sadducees jump on this moment and ultimately reduce their explanation of these passages into something that would become completely absurd. They tell the riddle of a man who marries a woman and dies. He has six brothers who can then fulfill the liberate obligation, and so she marries each one, and all seven die without bearing a child, which then leads the Sadducees to ask the absurd question, of whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, the reason for the question can be found in their argument with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees believed the world would come or the world that was coming is basically an improved version of the one that they are currently living in. Therefore, that world, according to the Pharisees, would include marriage. Now, for the Sadducees, they thought this concept and idea of the Pharisees was actually absurd because, again, the books of the law of Moses, which they believed was the undisputed word of God, does not mention a future resurrection and therefore it does not exist now bear in mind This is an argument between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But let's remember that Jesus has already spoken of his resurrection three times by this point. We saw it in Mark chapter 8 verses 31, Mark 9 verses 31, and again Mark chapter 10 verse 34. So the Sadducees think they have Jesus cornered just like they were able to corner the Pharisees. But if we move on in our text to verse 24 and 25, we see that Jesus now takes the problem and he turns it into the plan. Now, we start this section with a very simple truth theological error must be confronted quickly and clearly. Whether you are correcting someone or you are the one being corrected, we need to realize that this correction for us as believers, when we're correcting other like-minded believers, this Comes from a place of love. You see, it always amazes me as to how we have forgotten as believers that a part of love is being able to correct a wrong when we see or hear one, especially when it has to do with the Word of God. You see, when it comes to my own family, and if you don't know me, just know that I am the blessed father of four beautiful girls. They are wonderful, they are sweet, they take care of one another, and then I think at some point in their room, they got together, the four of them, and determined one day out of every two weeks, we are going to launch an assault against our parents, and we are going to argue like there's no tomorrow. It's almost like watching a hockey fight right now. I don't know if you've ever been to a hockey match, but I am almost convinced, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm almost convinced that two men, one from one team, one from the other, agree before the match or before the game that we should throw gloves and fight each other. Why? Because it's entertaining. I think for my children, they just want to test us. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I cannot confirm that. Miley's looking at me going, no, we've never had that conversation. We just simply fight. But here's the reality. Am I a loving parent if I'm unwilling to correct my child? Am I a loving parent if I am unwilling to create what we call margin in their life? You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, this is not a call to be critical It's a call to say we must love one another enough in order to correct one another. You see, that's a part of love. Too many times I'm seeing churches and I'm seeing leaders say, God is love, Jesus is love, God is love. It's almost like we treat Jesus Christ as if he's some coach in a dugout. He's just there to encourage and affirm and make you better. But the reality is the only way we do get encouraged and affirmed and made better is to know that not only does Jesus Christ show us grace, but by the grace of God, he loves us enough to correct us. So too should we treat one another. You see, oftentimes people will come to us and they will correct us, and they will be able to point to the word of God, and then our initial reaction is twofold. We either say, do not judge me, who are you to judge? Or we say this, have you no compassion Well, the reality is this. If as your pastor, I see blatant sin in your life, then what kind of compassion am I showing you if I don't help correct you? You see, the reality for us as believers is this, is if we are not willing to have hard conversations with one another, if we are not willing to hold one another accountable, if we're not willing to correct error, whether it be error of sin or theological error, then what kind of person are we? What kind of believer are we? And do we truly love one another? You see, because here's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Would you rather be corrected now? Or would you rather find yourself standing before the throne of God in judgment, being corrected by him? Those are our choices as we stand today. Now, back to our text. Jesus now tells the Sadducees that they do not know the Scriptures or the power of God, according to our text. Now, Jesus clearly states that the Sadducees are deceived, actually where we get the English word for planet, which means to wander off course or go astray. So literally, Jesus is accusing the Sadducees of wandering off course. You have wandered away from truth. You have steered yourself in a direction that has led you astray. So Jesus here accuses the theological elite that there is an error in their expertise. What they claim to know the best, which is the Torah, the Pentateuch itself, they clearly know the least. And since they misunderstand the Bible, they clearly misunderstand God as well. You see, misinterpreting the scriptures will lead to a distorted view of God. It will always lead to God being too small. And I want to share with you that that is not the God of the Bible. And so Jesus begins correcting the Sadducees in verse 25. He explains to them that the world of resurrection will be different. From the world we live in. In fact, as we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, we know that it is a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because again of Revelation 21, verse 1, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So Jesus teaches them that there will be a resurrection and there will be no marriage relationship as we know it in this life. You see, marriage will not be necessary as we will all be a part of one family worshiping the one true and living God. We will not exist for ourselves, we will exist in glorified bodies, and we will still maintain our unique identities, but it will be far better than anything we could ask for, or anything that we can imagine, and it will all be for the glory of God. You see, this moment of resurrection, this moment that we find ourselves in glory it will exceedingly surpass all of the desires that we could ever want here on this earth. In other words... If I could give you a simple note on the glory that is to come, on the kingdom of God that is to come, I would say this to you. When we are there together, no one will be disappointed in any way when we arrive in heaven. We will not be deprived of one thing that is needed or necessary for maximum joy and optimal happiness and complete salvation. Satisfaction. You see, some have asked this question when you explain this to them. Okay, so that's what happens after I die. Well, then let me ask you this question Will I miss anyone or will I miss anything? Well, believer in Jesus Christ, let me answer that for you according to this text. No. You will not miss anyone. No, you will not miss anything. Our relationship with Jesus and the family of God will be so intense in this moment. It will be so filled with love and affection that all the earthly marital bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison when we experience the glory of God in heaven. You see, heaven is God's perfect plan for his people who have come to him through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord it's a place where there will be no more tears it's a place where there will be no more pain it's a place where we will be perfected it's a place where we will no longer be going to the doctor for medical checkups Dare I say, it'll be a place where we will gather collectively together as one, and we will not be worried about an epidemic or a pandemic or anything that is called the coronavirus. It will be perfect. Can we even begin to imagine what that will be like? I mean, here's the reality. We can We can talk about heaven all day. We can talk about the resurrection all day. I imagine in this moment with Jesus and the Sadducees, he probably knew way more about what was coming than they could even ask or imagine. He clearly knew way more than even what the disciples could think or imagine. Now, we, again, are given a glimpse of heaven in the Scriptures, but the reality is there is way more to it. Now, we can talk about it and be encouraged about it, but here's the reality. We can begin to try to define the kingdom of God and what it is going to be like but the reality is we will never come close to what it actually is until we are there what a day of rejoicing that will be we move into verse 26 and 27 we've now moved from the questioning the doubt the problem We have seen the plan, and now in verse 26 and 27, here comes the power. We see here that Jesus defeats the Sadducees on their own turf. He's actually going to use the book of Moses against them. But then notice this. Notice that the doctrine of resurrection has support in the Old Testament already. We see the doctrine of the resurrection played out in passages like Job 19, verses 25 and 27. We see it in passages like Psalm 16, verses 9 and 11, and even in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. But Jesus here in our text is going to meet the Sadducees right where they are, and he takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and the story of the burning bush. There we see God speaking to Moses, but notice this about the Hebrew there. When God is speaking to Moses, he is speaking to them in present tense. And Jesus brings this before the Sadducees. He tells them that God said, I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. Now, this is important because by speaking in the presence tense, Jesus, God in the Old Testament, is telling us that yes, they died physically, but they are alive and well spiritually. The phrase that God used was not this I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and I was the God of Jacob. No, he says I am their God. In other words being their God in the present tense now implies a covenant with them and it is inconceivable to think that the eternal God does not maintain an eternal covenant with his people. This is the same covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's the same covenant that we see him make in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, in speaking of this passage, Tim Keller says, Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death on the idea of an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot at our death scrap That which is precious to him, and that is the covenant he made with his people. In other words, by God's covenant with us and us to him as believers, we now belong to God. Therefore, the end matters. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so the Sadducees here are wrong, and Jesus has now silenced his critics once again you see we should praise God because God doesn't say at our death you done good now I'm no longer your God no that's not what he says at all in fact if you were with us this past Friday night you would have been a part of uh, a movie that we watched a very powerful story written by John Bunyan who tells us in the Pilgrim's Progress that the end of this life is just the end of this part of the journey. And it's the beginning of eternity that we have with Christ. An eternity where, as Bunyan writes, we will find ourselves in what is called the celestial city, the great city that was created by God. What we have here, the pains, the hurts, the sorrows, the struggles, the unknowns, this is, this is fleeting. This is temporal or temporary, if you will. But what we have to come is everlasting. What we have to come is eternal. And God has made his covenant with his people. And we as believers in Christ, because of Christ and his atoning work, we are now covenanted back to him. So as believers, let's rest in the fact that we can expect a great God to prepare a great heaven for his people. Now, the Bible, again, does not tell us everything about the coming glory of God. It doesn't tell us everything about heaven, but it does tell us more than enough to make us long for that glorious destiny. Now, if you don't believe me in that, then let's Look, together what is heaven going to be like or better yet what is heaven it is a place being prepared by Jesus Christ himself according to John 14 verse 3 it is a place only for those who have been born again according to John chapter 3 verse 3 it is a glorious city that will shine with and is lit by the by God's glory according to Revelation chapter 21 verse 11 verse 18 verse 23 and again in Revelation chapter 22 verse 5. We know of heaven that the gates will never be shut according to Revelation 21 verse 25. We know that heaven has the water of life for everlasting life and the tree of life for abundant life according to Revelation 22 verse 1 Revelation 2 verse 7 and again in Revelation 22 verse 19 we know that in heaven it has the throne of God at its center according to Revelation 4 and again in Revelation 22 it is a place of holiness Again, in Revelation 21, verse 27, it is beautiful according to Psalms 50, verse 2. It is a place of unity and perfection according to Ephesians 1, verse 10 and 1 Corinthians 13, 10. It is joyful according to Psalm 16, verse 11. It is a place for all eternity according to John three, fifteen, and Psalm 23, 6. And it is a place that has no night, again, according to Revelation 21, verse 25. and Revelation 22 verse 5. It is filled with singing according to Isaiah 44, Revelation 14 and Revelation 15. Now I could go on but I think you are beginning to get the picture that the kingdom of God the heaven that has been created by our great God is a great place that he is created in order to enjoy with his creation and he is the only one who deserves our praise when we get there but here's the reality. We're just scratching the surface of what heaven is according to the Bible. But then notice this. Notice what it says about our bodies. Again, this is Jesus talking to the Sadducees, a people who don't believe in a resurrection, a people who don't believe in a coming glory of God, a people who don't believe in the fact that one day we will rest in a glorified state. So for those of you who are here and your bodies are hurting, your bodies are broken, your bodies are sick, you are worried about what may be coming in the coming weeks, then hear what Scripture says about our bodies once we enter the kingdom of God. We learn that our bodies will be recognizable according to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12. We learn that we will be glorified like Christ's body according to 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. We learn that about our bodies that we will not be limited by space according to Luke 24 and John 20. We learn that our bodies will be eternal according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. We will be glorious according to Romans eight eighteen and 1 Corinthians 15 verse 43. And then here's the beauty of it. There will be no more pain. Our bodies will not know pain, according to Revelation 21, verse 4. We will not die, according to 1 Corinthians 15, or Revelation 21. And then we will no longer hunger or thirst, according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. And then we also know that our bodies will no longer know sin, according to Revelation 21, verse 27 we have so much to hope in we have so much to be thankful for Because of our covenant with God that is found in our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we have much to be thankful for. We have a future that is promised. So thanks be to God for the doctrine and the power of the resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but Based on just these texts alone, I am looking forward to heaven. I literally look at my wife, Allison, and tell her every morning, one day, we will see each other in glory and and we will not be husband and wife at that point. We will be brother and sister in Christ. But just know this, one day you're going to see me and I'm going to look good. She then encourages me and says, babe, you look good now. I'm thankful for that encouragement. And I won't question her on it because as long as she believes, I believe. But here's the reality. This is the question we have to ask ourselves. Knowing what heaven is going to be like. Knowing that there is power in the resurrection. There is power in the empty tomb. Will we be there together to enjoy it? Knowing that there's power in the resurrection, knowing that there's power in the tomb, what about the people around us? What about our our family members, our friends, our co workers? We are fixing to enter into a season of unknown. We don't know what the next few days hold for us in this country. But as we enter this season together, who around us do we know that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the kingdom to come and the power of his glorious resurrection? You see, here's the reality. Knowing that this is what awaits us in heaven, knowing what heaven is going to be like, this small glimpse, knowing what our our bodies are going to be like, this small glimpse, Here's the question we have to ask ourselves is why would we not share in the joy-filled hope of what we know is coming? You see, this is why Jesus was able to look at the Sadducees and say, you are getting it wrong. There, for him, he was saying, oh, there's coming a resurrection, but for us today, we already know there is a resurrection. There is power found in the empty tomb. And so the reality for us is by God's grace through the wonderful work of Jesus Christ we now have a promised future. And so for the believers today the question for us is will we share in that promise? Will we share in that future? Will we make that promised future that shared future that that kingdom that is to come will we make that known today will we tell people about jesus christ the hope that is to come the promised future that we have as believers may we make it known for that's my prayer for you today